Well, hello, brothers and sisters. This is John Dupuy. I want to tell you about a very, very special conversation that we had with a Jewish teacher and mystic, Svi Ish Shalom. Roger first told me about him that when he was traveling to Israel, he read his book on the plane, which is the Kaduma Experience. I picked up the book and started reading it, and I was blown away. I'm also very interested in Jewish spiritual tradition and its mystical path. And it was quite a while ago, it was when we were first starting out, and there were some technical difficulties with the mic, so we had to go back and really reconstruct this conversation as far as the audio clarity, but we did because we think it was so important. And I tell you, when I was in conversation with this young man, I just felt the presence of God. I don't know how better to explain it. So I hope you guys will enjoy it as much as I did and get the profound transmission that comes through Svi's work and his presence and his teaching. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. My name is John Dupuy, this is Douglas Prater and Dr. Roger Walsh, and Svi Shalom. This is a part of our ongoing inquiry and conversation and quest to look for the deepest and the best in us, and to be part of this new emergent world scene, but our attempt to bring contemplative or spiritual depth to any subjects that arise, because without that, it's just not going to be complete, and it won't be a lot of fun. So with that, Roger, would you like to introduce our guest today. I would love to. This is Dr. Rabbi Zvi Shalom, who has become in a very short time a very dear friend. But before you were a friend, you were an inspiration. And I, I don't think you know the story, but we have a mutual friend who, when he learned I was going to Israel last year, said, oh, you must read this book. So I got this book, which turned out to be the Kaduma experience. And I had the incredible gift of touring Israel for the first time while reading this book. And for some reason, Jewish spirituality is, even though I'm not of the tribe, has been very important to me. And I've spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around it without a lot of success. But it was very clear to me very quickly that your book was easily the most profound spiritual text I had read in the Jewish tradition. And it felt like you were attempting and succeeding in bringing a new, a novel perspective and a novel degree of depth, spiritual realization, to this millennia-old tradition, which felt to me like it often got encrusted in symbolism and language. And as traditions do, they've been a process of truth decay. And... As I read your book, it really blew me away because you bring so many dimensions to this project. You, you have a PhD in religious studies, you're a rabbi, and you've had some very deep awakenings at a very early age. And as I understand it, you'd had these awakenings and hadn't been able to find a context for them in your tradition. And I think you told me it had great trouble finding anyone even to talk to in the tradition about, about these experiences. And then what I saw you doing was using this rich knowledge you have of your, of your tradition and using your awakenings to infuse this tradition with a fresh spiritual insight and depth. And it just seemed really, really valuable and important and one of the great gifts of our time. And it wasn't long before I came to realize I wasn't the only one who realized this. I kept running across other people who went, wow, at the same time. So it just feels like you're making one of the contributions of our time, bringing a spiritual depth and awareness and sensitivity into your tradition in a new way. And Carl Jung had a beautiful concept of what he called the Gnostic intermediary. And the Gnostic intermediary is someone who, who takes, imbibes the wisdom and understanding of a tradition so deeply that they can then communicate it to, to another tradition or another culture. 
And it seems to require three things. One is you really have to imbibe and embody the wisdom. Second, you have to know the language and conceptual system of the community to which you're trying to communicate. And then you have to be able to translate it in such a way as it, that it makes sense. And they go, oh, of course, aha. And Gnostic intermediaries, it seems like it's not that there are two types. One transmits across cultures, but also there are Gnostic intermediaries who revive cultures by infu infusing a fresh understanding in the language and concepts of our time through the medium of the ancient tradition. Now, it feels like you're one of the truly, I really mean it's one of the truly great Gnostic intermediaries of our time for the Jewish mystical tradition. And I don't think, I'm not alone in that recognition. So I really want to acknowledge the work you're doing, and I'm just delighted we get to explore this way. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So there are so many areas we could cover. You, I didn't mention, but you've also trained very deeply in a variety of other traditions. You have done the diamond work, for example. You're very familiar with some, some of the Buddhist practices and concepts and so you had you're also doing something that is also part of our time that is you're bringing an in full a multicultural multi-traditional perspective to bear on your own and enrich your own understanding and to infuse where appropriate some of those understandings into your own tradition so we have many places we could we could begin okay could, could i ask Robert, just to Maybe you know, tell us a little about your personal story and how you came to be that that Roger can so eloquently describe it. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me here. It's like feel a kinship with all three of you, even just sitting here for just a few minutes already. We're sharing a in a in a journey and a process along with our listeners. That is. Uh, feels really big, actually, as I sit here and feel into, sense into, you know, kind of the, the inspiration and the, the forces at play. So I want to acknowledge that and, and honor the three of you for that. I was actually born in a very traditional Jewish home. And I was born in Israel, but I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, which according to some is the real Holy Land. Uh, <laughs> And um, very, uh, you know, in an Orthodox home community. And so from a young age, I was really deeply immersed in, in that life and in a life of traditional Torah learning and practice. And, you know, even though it was a pretty rigid religious uh, environment in certain ways, I still felt an inner connection to some of the rituals and, and practices that we were doing. Like, for example, I remember having profound experiences of connection to the divine, you know, called the divine at a young age, just in synagogue, praying, you know, on holidays and such like that. Like, it was something about the combination of the language and the sound and, and the, the melodies of the prayer and the the community coming together, even though I, I wouldn't, the, the folks who would pray in these synagogues weren't, wouldn't call themselves spiritual in the way that we would use the word. They were simple people just, that had a lot of devotion, simple devotion to God and would pray from that place. And I could feel that. So I would say I grew up in a kind of very religious environment. And, and yet, as I, as I uh, grew up, I started to experience and be called to an even deeper process, a deeper journey. That at some point I felt the community that I was in didn't really have the vessels to hold, didn't have the orientation to be able to kind of guide me or even support me in understanding. And I had a question for you yeah. before we go on. Did you have a master or a rabbi or a teacher or an elder during this formative period when you were starting to go a little bit beyond the tradition you grew up in who was there to 
that you could confide in and learn from and who you respected? I did not really have a teacher until I was, you know, a, a late teen, early, in my very early 20s, I met a Hasidic uh, rabbi who became, you know, for a period of time, like what we call my Rebbe, you know, Rebbe in the Hasidic tradition is like a spiritual guide, not just a, a rabbi who you go to to ask, you know, Jewish legal questions, but they really function as a, an inner journey guide. And he was that for me for a short time. He wasn't a journey guide in the sense that you could have a normal conversation with him. It wasn't like that. It was more on an energetic vibrational level that he was plugged in to something that for the first time in my life, I felt like I was meeting someone who understood the inner world in the way that I was experiencing them. And just through his being, I was able to find, and, and this, and the few, you know, even just through a few sentences that he would say to me, I could feel the resonance and the understanding that was a, that was a huge support for me in those formative times. Yeah. He was in this very, very ultra Orthodox community and, you know, had no real understanding of the secular world that I was already functioning in. Uh, so there were limitations in terms of that relationship. However, on the inner level, it was formative because he was able to kind of see what was happening and reflect that in a way that uh, I, I felt like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> and this stuff is real. And it's actually uh, aligned in a much deeper way with the tradition than what the normative community could reflect. That must have been a disorienting period because you were having these experiences, which it sounds like no one other than this Rebbe could understand. You couldn't talk to people. And it sounds like you had no framework for holding this. Must have been yeah. quite something. Yeah, it was pretty something. <laughs> <laughs> to use a technical term. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was something. I, I, had no, I, I had no framework for it, really. Yeah. Like, especially around experiences of dissolution of self, radical spaciousness or, you know, nothingness, emptiness. I had no language in my own tradition to speak to those experiences. And at that time, I had not explored any other traditions yet. So I, I didn't even know that there were traditions that actually have language to describe those states. Mm -hmm. And so for a period of time, I wondered if I had like, you know, <laughs> sort of landed in some corner of the psyche that was not a good place to be because it felt so radically different than you know what I could uh, that what I could find in my tradition yeah. and and how did you begin to understand these and then beyond that begin to map your experiences into and enrich your own tradition. So when I first had a series of you know, these kind of deeper experiences, I was actually practicing in the Jewish tradition. I, I had a prayer practice. I was doing some versions of Jewish contemplative practices related to the divine names, where I would meditate on the, the Hebrew divine names in certain ways. And that was really the practices that generated this deepening process that opened up into all kinds of modes of experience that permanently had transformed my life. Like once those portals open in a way, there's no going back. So when those experiences occurred, I knew that there must have been some relationship to the tradition because that was the context in which they arose. I was doing this practice. There was a clear you know, even though now, as my understanding has deepened, I don't see it exactly as a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly that way, but in another way, there is a cause and effect in that at that time, the way I understood it was I did some practices and there was this effect of these experiences, right? Wow. Um, 
So I, I, my assumption was that there was a relationship between the two, even though I couldn't find an explanation in the texts for such a process. And I couldn't find, until I met this Rebbe that I mentioned, I couldn't find someone, some exemplar in the tradition that could speak to those cause and effect cycles within the mm -hmm. tradition, or could even reflect in some sense that the experiences I was having has some kind of evolutionary you know, meaning to it. <laughs> I was told to see a psychiatrist by one rabbi. <laughs> 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 you know, there's like all funny rabbi, stuff. Finding God, go see a psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so then, you know, what happened was that this rabbi sort of reflected, you know, because when I, the first time I met him, there were no words exchanged. I had already had some deep experiences and I walked into his, you know, study. See, I was worked by a friend. It was one of those things where it wasn't planned. I wasn't really looking for a Rebbe. <laughs> I happened to find myself in that situation. And so he saw me come in. He called me over and he exchanged just a few words. And in those few words, he basically communicated to me. He says, I see, you know, I see where you are. I see what you see. And it's real. And he showed me some texts and he pulled off a text out of the shelf. Like it was one of those magical moments where you have these beings, you know, who are not operating in normative time space. And he takes out this book and he just like, you know, like goes like this. And he shows me this passage from one of the ancient texts in Hebrew. In that instant, I understood that this is all that's all there. Because he was showing me. In the text, mm -hmm. you know, and he didn't have to explain it. I could see, and from the play, from the state I was in, I could see and understand that that that, that text was describing a certain state. See? So it, it was a it was a formative connection in a way for me. Beautiful, because from that point on, I was able to then go back to the texts and see the experiences in the, in the text and actually see the texts from a different vantage point. Yeah. Is there something in the Torah or the Talmud? Yeah. What was, I'm interested in the text, I guess. Or, or is that something? It was in the Hasidic text. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was in the Hasidic text that, that pointed to a tradition that before we come into the world, you know, the soul in a sense takes a vow. We take a vow about the kind of purpose, mission, the kind of manifestation that we will undertake as a soul in this particular embodiment, in this incarnation. So this particular passage was reflecting, and he said to me, he said, you must remember this vow, you know, that you took. He says, I see it, you know. And so it was like, it synced up somewhere in my inner the inner outer constellation of forces of of my experience synced up linked up you know synced in in a way that i felt yes okay i remember that and i don't know if this is a pro will feel appropriate for you to share but if it does how do you understand your calling now it's an ever-evolving, I feel super solid, super clear that I'm here to share this particular wisdom stream as, it's, as it comes through me. And it's, I, I would say, I wouldn't even say it's Judaism or Kabbalah or Torah or anything like that. Those terms are too limiting. However, I do feel like there, there are particular wisdom streams that have their own textures and flavors and colors and tones and that can be discernible through our sensory perception. And so I feel a particular wisdom stream and it has articulated itself primarily thus far through the ancient Hebrew teachings as they've developed in history. However, 
The reason why I call the book The Kaduma Experience, and, and this term Kaduma, which came to me when I first started introducing these teachings, the word itself means primordial. And it points to what I call the primordial life or the primordial Torah. The primordial Torah is actually, it's a concept that comes from the tradition and it points to the primordial ground of our being, the non-conceptual uh, pre-thought, you know, state in which um, it's like there's an arising out of nothingness. The teaching arises. It simply appears. It's not like, you know, I sit down with a whiteboard and map out, you know, okay, this would be a, this would be a logical place to go, you know, with this concept and let's develop it in this way. You know, it's not a professorial process it's an arising out of the primordial ground and what i've come to see is that the torah tradition has its roots in the primordial ground of being that it like other traditions because i also experienced this with other wisdom traditions and wisdom streams that they are a kind of revelation you know original articulation they are a revelation out of some experiential ground of being and so when I say I see my I'm very clear about my purpose or mission I forget the word you use you know calling I feel like my primary calling is to be a translator from that primordial ground mm-hmm into the realm of manifestation to allow the teaching to arise and and therefore I can't confine it to any particular tradition exactly but that will however it gets articulated is how it gets articulated yeah touching it is something very important there too um, in not only the variety of traditions but you grew up in a context where you were able to connect cause and effect between the practices you were doing from the tradition you were raised in and it's having this effect. Um, Now, more and more people are searching for answers and you brought in earlier the secular world and the secular experience. And as people have these experiences and search for these answers, how do we translate that spirituality, that religion, that tradition is even a place to look, to explain, to find answers for a large secular percentage of population who very much need the meaning, the context, the direction to interpret and grow and make a difference in this world. So in my experience, the main difference, like the way that that gets transmitted in the secular community, because that's, I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm sharing with the secular world. I'm not teaching in primarily a Jewish context at all. And what I found with Kaduma, with these teachings, is that if the teachings are coming from that ground and a person is truly connected to that, then regardless of the cultural context that you're in, even in a secular context, people people get it. Like I can use very traditional... And I do use, you know, in the book, I, I'm using very traditional Jewish Kabbalistic teachings that are in a typical kind of presentation when it's presented as a religious teaching or as a teaching of Judaism. It's irrelevant, kind of old paradigm, not accessible as, as a path. And it's, it's true. It's not accessible as a path. Judaism as a religion is irrelevant for 99.9% of the planet. And it always will be. And and that includes Jews, right? Which is why a Jewish person who wishes to go to to explore deep contemplative practice, one of the last places they would go to is a synagogue. (laughs) Of course, one could say that about Jews. Christians, apparently, yeah. Of course. So, but that's the reality, right? And so, you know, so they would go to a Buddhist, a Dharma center or a, or a Hindu temple or, 
or whatnot, right? So I'm not talking about Jews or non-Jews. It's like, it's just the paradigm. If, if teachings are, are presented from the paradigm of religion, you know, religion, tribe, uh, ideology, all those kinds of kind of constructs, then they, they don't transmit the experience for uh, someone who's not of that context. And so what we do in Kaduma is we can use the teachings because the teachings carry a certain vibration and they can be useful. And so how do we communicate that, that usefulness and those vibrations and the, the transmissional potential of these ancient teachings to a secular person? In my experience, you just simply approach it from its original, like connect to that original primordial ground. And then the teachings actually come alive as transmissional forces. And the person th doesn't care about the religion because the person, who, you know, as you're sharing it, like personally, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't identify with the religious, cultural, tribal, all that, that stuff when I'm teaching Kaduma, when I'm teaching these teachings, it's just simply, it's a direct thing, you know, it's, and therefore the teachings are alive in that way. There are a couple of metaphors that are coming to, to mind. One is from the Jewish tradition. I want to hear you talking about is the living waters. If one is coming from the Kaduma and is able to transmit the living waters of, of the teaching as opposed to the, the outdated terms and concepts. And the other phrase that's coming to me is from one of the most famous Jews of all, of course, Yeshua. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. <laughs> And it's like, that's what I hear you you're saying, that as long as you're just, you are being that Kaduma experience, yeah. then you can use any number of language and conceptual systems and transmitters. Presumably, will, wisdom will allow you to choose the most appropriate one for the right person, but it's the source from which it's coming that really makes it a living teaching. So, yeah. I would imagine that you have students who who want to remain in Jewish tradition that can go to you to tap into the mm -hmm. waters as you were saying, or Christians who want to be yeah. in that tradition, but all of these things just without the living primordial experience of spirit or God are really painful and largely, well, I won't say a waste of time, but can waste a lot of time. Yeah. So, so do you, do you find that your, your students come from like spiritual, but not religious? are devout religious people too that also want to mm -hmm. learn from you or is it kind of spread about evenly? Yeah, we do all kinds. Yeah, we have devout Orthodox Jews, devout Christians, secular but not, you know, spiritual but not religious, every walk of life, really. And the amazing thing about, I mean, the thing that I appreciate about this perspective or the Kaduma perspective, which I don't feel, I feel is, is something that's a universal principle, you know, and active for many traditions, actually, if someone's plugged into that. The thing that I most appreciate it, about it is how relevant it seems to be for our time in this way, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. it is able, in the same sentence, because of its radical, the radical experiential perspective from which it is rooted, in the same sentence, it's able to actually touch and reach an incredibly wide spectrum of people in a way that, you know, a specific tradition in, in the former paradigm has been unable to do. That is to say that, you know, if I were to be teaching as a rabbi, if I'm teaching Judaism as a rabbi from within the framework, of Judaism, and you have a devout Jewish person, a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a, a, and then let's say a handful of secular people who are more scientifically oriented or whatnot. You know, if I'm coming from some steps removed from the ground itself, that teaching is only going to resonate, you know, with a small subsection of that collection of people. But if I'm orienting from the ground itself, the same sentence, even if it's a very traditional teaching, all of a sudden is touching everybody in a different way, in a way that's relevant for them. So 
the Buddhist understands, you know, and connects more deeply to their lineage and their path that provides them with a more sustainable connection. The Christian in a similar way. And so what I'm hearing from people that are connecting to like Yuma is that it doesn't inspire them to convert to Judaism. It inspires them to become like actually to connect more deeply to their own, to what is most resonant, true, authentic, and aligned for them as a unique, never to be duplicated manifestation of spirit and form. And that feels to me to be incredibly relevant for our time. Yeah. Because that, in a sense, is the emerging paradigm of teaching that we can be both radically different, distinct, autonomous as individuals, and at the same time also appreciate a shared ground, you could say. And it feels like you're doing two things. You you are doing your spiritual teaching and transmitting these living waters from your lived Kaduma experience in a way that's available to all, which is wonderful. And we're blessed now to have a number of people doing that. But you're doing also something unique. You're taking that experience or transmitting that experience into your tradition and it feels like revivifying the spirit of the tradition. And that feels, I don't know anyone else doing it in the same way. So you're doing, it feels like you're doing these two things simultaneously. Yeah, I appreciate that discrimination. It's true. I, so, sometimes I call it like there's two Kadumas. There's the Kaduma principle, which is what I was just you know pointing to, mm-hmm. which is really just the universal principle of reality. That there is simply a non-conceptual you know, mystery that many traditions have recognized and many people have and do experience that. And then there's a second Kaduma, which is like the particular expression of Kaduma as it, as it reveals itself through the Jewish lineage stream. And I've been kind of holding both of those. And depending on the context, the Kaduma will ex- express itself. It may express itself more particularized as a Jewish teaching in certain contexts. So I do work with people who have an interest in studying Judaism specifically through this lens. And for those people, it's Kaduma too, you know? <laughs> so like, so we, it's like J- Jewish teachings, you know, we could study the Talmud, we could study Hasidic and Kabbalistic texts, we could study the, you know, the Torah itself, the Hebrew Bible. And it's a radical experience to study those texts from the Kaduma one perspective, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's, I think, what there's been a, you know, there's been a gap or a void yeah. in the Jewish community uh, for such a perspective and and an ability to, to see and connect these traditional teachings to that ground. However, what I, what's so amazing is that when you come at it from the experiential point of view, and I try and sort of illuminate this in the book, it's become so obvious that this is what the texts are talking about. Like, it yes. can't be understood any other... I mean, you have to force it into a different under, in a different understanding, and yet to see just, like, what's been hidden in plain sight, revealed, it's, like, the most obvious thing and the most radical thing in, in the same instant. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, it's like, of course that's what it means when you look at it from this perspective. It's, like, so obvious, and yet so has been so opaque you know because of all the overlays and cultural all the different like cultural and tribal and religious sort of overlays have completely like clouded our ability to actually see these texts as living expressions of the mystery itself let me play the devil's advocate please yeah Uh, (laughs) it's a role that comes easily so you are, your gift is to look at these, these venerable texts and to see them in the light of the Kaduma principle. And from your perspective, unveil the fact that they were coming from that place too. As I look at those texts, it seems like they're a mishmash of many levels of realization and understanding. And it seems 
that it's entirely possible to do what I call retro-read into the text one's own contemporary understanding and, in your case, deeper insights than perhaps were in some of the texts. Does that... I think that's exactly what's happening. (laughs) 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 I think it's both ends. The truth is, is that I don't actually care what the original intention of the author was or who who wrote it or any of that stuff, right? Like, you know, that whole sort of modernist way of approaching texts, it doesn't align with my experience of the immediacy of relating to a text from a non-conceptual vantage point. So when I'm relating to it from when I'm relating to Kaduma two from Kaduma one, (laughs) (laughs) then there's a sense of both ends. This is both has been the timeless meaning in some sense, because I can't separate the state from the text in that mode. So there's a sense of is was will be. Mm, mm. The, the text is this was will be it's not like it was written at some point in history it's like the text is actually a revelation in, in the moment the, it's like black fire on white fire as, mm. as the ancient mm. you know midrash rabbinic text sort of called the scroll it's like it's like the, the scroll is appearing yeah. in the instant and in that sense yes i'm retro reading it i'm relating to it anew completely fresh in this instant and it reveals its meaning its transmission as it pertains to the immediacy of our time and place yeah and in a curious way your response to my devil's advocacy is congruent with two streams of ideas one the traditional jewish mystical idea of these are living texts and as you said the the fire arises out of them, and with contempor- contemporary postmodern thought, with the idea of a fixed meaning in the text, that's not at all. It's a create. We as the readers are as much or even more responsible for the creation of any meaning than was ever intended by the author. Yes, exactly. I wonder too. I may be way off base, but would love to hear your perspective here. If some of the intricacy of the study that's involved when you're really diving deep into such a rich tradition serves as a sort of koan to drop you beyond it into the experience of Kaduma 1 through the overwhelming analytical study of it. Totally. I mean, actually, the, the really the first deep contemplative experiences that I had as, as I would say, a teenager was through studying Torah. Yeah. It, it was through studying Talmud, through studying Torah, and then as I became a late teen, I started to delve into more of the sort of Hasidic and Kabbalistic texts. And at, it was through studying those texts that, yes, it can happen through analysis, through deep analysis, actually, in my experience, especially in that's a more Talmudic study, where you would be like the mind would be you'd be pitching the mind against the mind in a certain kind of inner dialectical process in Talmud study. And also with, with an other, because traditionally Talmud is studied in partnership in, with a dialectical partner. And so we would engage in this very dynamic back and forth unpacking of the text. But, you know, different than our, the Western tradition of debate, where the, where the objective is to kind of put down the other, to win the debate by coming up with you know, by, by hitting the ball, it's like if you're playing uh, tennis. With tennis, you have to hit the ball, and you're trying to hit the ball to the other side in a way that your opponent cannot return, right? And so, like, Western debate has that kind of quality. Like, how can I defeat the other by providing a proof, an argument that it cannot be, in some sense, returned or refuted or rebutted? But the Talmud study has a very different quality in the exchange. It's more like playing hacky sack, (laughs) (laughs) right? Where the objective is to hit it to the other person in a way that they actually can hit it back 
but in a way that hits it back or kicks it back, right? In a manner that is more and more challenging, more and more interesting, more and more kind of revealing of the potential of the exchange than it is about getting the other person to lose. Because if one person, you know, can't kick it back, everybody loses. Like, you know, the whole game is over. So it's very much a collective process of illumination, of deepening, of distilling truth in a more and more discriminated way. And actually my first experiences of opening occurred during a study of Talmud. In this exchange where there would be a moment where something opened. There was like, everything stopped and there was the revelation of a new insight. And that moment of revelation of new insight, there's, that's coming out of the mystery. Like, it's not like we thought it out. We debated, not again, in, in the second form of debate that, that's more uh, inspirational and evolutionary. Um, something got distilled to the point where everything stopped. It was like that blank. And then the new understanding and the insight ar- arose. Yeah. And that's, that was my first understanding that there's something mysterious happening. You know, one of the things I like, it was kind of making me happy just to hear you speak is in kind of popular spirituality the mind is the enemy you know and and the jewish mystical tradition the mind is a tool that yes, re-sacralizes or maybe they, they need to re-sacralize it's already sacralized but to bring back the mind as a part of the, the capacity human capacity that we have to find god is it nobilizes the mind and i think it's good for our brains and it's good for our psyches to, to realize that totally yeah yes. in the christian tradition i think in the 1890s or some fundamentalism as we understand it that they came up and and from jewish uh, teachers that i've read they said if you if you try to interpret this stuff literally you just you just don't get it that's and, right and you never will there's layers within layers that's part where there's the reader there's a text and there's god and at some point that becomes one but that struggle with sacred texts and anyway it makes me happy and i was when I had my first big spiritual opening, when I was 11 years old, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. And boom, it was like, God is love. God is everything. And I was like struggling. And I said, well, if God is love and he says, love your enemies, bless them and curse you, we probably shouldn't be dropping napalm and machine gunning people, you know, for a Christian nation. That doesn't seem right. And, but well, the tragedy of that is I, did, I didn't feel that I could go to a Catholic priest. I mean, I felt none of the energy yeah. that I was having, you know, experiencing my own. So I wandered many years without any eldering, without a, a, a rep, or yeah. without a teacher. I wonder if you get to work with young people or what you would recommend. Of how do we elder? How do we support the, the spiritual and mystical aspirations of all our generations from, from the young to the teenage? And yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't really know. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning about that as, as I uh, work with people. And, you know, I, I've had the blessing uh, of raising a child. And this, of course, question has been an interesting one for me as a parent. And then also working with, I work a lot with millennial age, you know, and younger, un- like new undergraduate students. And I find that on the one hand, many people are, young people are searching for something more solid to hold on to, like something with roots, something to provide a structure in the spiritual journey. And so there's, a, there's an interest in teachings and teachers and path for that reason. And in some sense, human beings, you know, oftentimes, you know, need that structure on the journey. And at the same time, the structures that exist don't have typically the sensitivity of spirit that some percentage of the population is going to open to and then be not, not have mentorship around. So I've positioned myself in a way with Kaduma one and two as my working solution at the, at the moment, even as it's a learning process, 
course is to create, a, in a sense, to embody a different paradigm of how we relate to, to these processes altogether. And this new paradigm allows for radical spaciousness and vastness, radical non-definition, non-determination, non-referential perspective on the one hand. And on the other hand, with that, the capacity to go very specific, very structured, very deep in a particular system, a particular path, a particular teaching. Because for many people, it's through a particular pathway that the depth, in some sense, can not only can be more accessible, but also more sustainable, more like integrated. However, the only deep structured paths that we have are organized and kind of oriented without like the Kaduma One principle. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. Like the issue is not the paths. The paths have incredible richness and value and whatever tradition it is, you know. The issue is that the priests, your case, right, and the rabbis in my case, simply don't have the, the perspective and the capacities to guide the emerging generation because the emerging generation a lot of this stuff is intuitive to them in a way that in my, you know, this is my sort of assessment at this current time is that I see it in, in the young people that I work with. They get intuitively the capacity for both and. Like they don't have the language yet to articulate it. And so in some sense, one of the things I feel like I'm trying to do with Kaduma is to provide language for the emerging generations to actually articulate what they are already intuitively, they already intuitively know. Mm. We are in a process of transmuting the root metaphors of our reality, of our humanity, of our cosmology, to be able to hold these more radical experiences. experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. Of God. Of God. Yeah, and of like the contradict what to hold these radical experiences that in, in the old paradigm were seen to be contradictory and thus incompatible, to be able to see, to experience them and to understand them as for there to be even contradictory and uh, apparently contradictory and opposing truths to coexist simultaneously without friction, without violating in any experiential way, the primordial principle of reality. And that feels like a kind of, as elders, we can embody that. I feel that the, the young and the next generations will feel guided simply by the presence of such exemplars mm -hmm. and the ability to articulate it. As you were talking, you were, you were implying this ongoing exploration and deepening understanding yourself of how to be more effective and uh, I think of the you've been also studied in the Buddhist tradition the distinction between prajna and upaya prajna being the the seeing into reality and upaya being the skill in applying and teaching or, or in western philosophy we have the the idea of the of sophia the deep in, in seeing into reality and phronesis, practical wisdom. So you're talking about your own evolving practical wisdom. And I want to I want to make sure we just name something that you brought out, and that is you were talking about, I forget the Jewish term for the partnership of two people who yeah. go into dialogue the way you're describing. There was that in, in, in Greece with the distinction they made between heuristic, which was simply argument and trying to win a point, as opposed to the Socratic dialogue, yeah. which was the search together for a deeper understanding and wisdom. And it seems like the Jewish tradition has that beautifully down, as, as does Tibetan Buddhism. It seems like those are the two traditions which have this idea of dialogue, debate, using one's skill, intellectual skills to the utmost to go beyond them. Yeah. And that's not well known in our culture. So here's a practice 
a way of being in dialogue that is actually a search for a deeper truth. And yeah. I just I, I just want to name it so that maybe just from what, the way you've described it and just from pointing to it, it can begin to seep out as a recognized part of our practice. Yeah. And I'd like to I'd like to add something to to what you're sharing about that because I think it's so important for our time. This practice of chavruta, that's the, the Aramaic word that we use to refer to that dialectical process of study. Traditionally in Judaism, that practice is focused on uncovering the deeper meaning or the true meaning of the text. Right? So there's an object of inquiry, which is some Torah text, whether it's the Bible or, or the Talmud or some Kabbalistic text. We want to understand that the, the assumption is that the truth of divinity, the truth of reality is somehow embedded inside this text. And we want to, you know, expose it, unpack it, reveal it. One of the thing, one of the key jumps or, you know, that I make in Kaduma is from the text as the object of our inquiry to the human being as the object of our inquiry. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a sound principle in the Torah tradition itself. Because the Torah scroll is oftentimes compared to a human being. Mm-hmm. Now, even in the synagogue to this day, there are relics from this actually ancient tradition where if a Torah scroll is taken out of the ark, if you have been to a synagogue service, everybody stands up and they walk around with the Torah scroll and people could, it's treated like a Torah scholar, you know? <laughs> or if a Torah scholar walks into a room, we were taught as children, you should stand up. Why? Because we stand up for the Torah, we should stand up for a Torah scholar because someone who embodies the Torah is like a Torah scroll. They are like the embodiment of the Torah scroll. And in a sense, there's many teachings like this, like every letter of the Torah is is an individual soul. And so if one letter is missing from the Torah, the, the scroll is unfit for use because it's really the embodiment, not just of an individual, but of the whole collective. So, what, you know, what do we do in Kaduma? The primary practice that we do in our groups and in our school is what we call Chavruta practice, which is the same term. I just use the term from studying. And what we do is we match up in pairs or small groups in different configurations, and we do inquiry practice. However, instead of trying to unpack the truth of the text, we work to unpack the truth of our human experience. Because mm. it's within that experience what we find that beneath any experience that we have, regardless of how contracted and difficult and painful it may be on the one hand, or sublime, expanded, and sort of revolutionary it is on the other, every experience, what we have discovered, when we approach it, as a with a kind of open curious exploratory spirit and with certain other kind of capacities in place it will naturally unravel and reveal ultimately its primordial source beautiful and again you're reminding me of common themes here with the plight in some ways of greek philosophy where it's sometimes said Socrates brought philosophy down from the heavens as, as metaphysics to life and to the human being. And that Greek philosophy, which is not commonly known, it was a real practice at that stage. It was uh, in using the intellect to exactly the way you describe as the way of opening to the transcendent. Yeah. And so I'm just struck by the, the parallels here because that was... You know, the Socratic and the, and the subsequent generations, it was an investigation of human life. Yes. That was the practice. You know, when I was in high school and then early under, when I was in yeshiva, actually, after high school, I went to, I was studying in the yeshiva, which is a traditional academy of Jewish learning, usually studying Talmud. I was in Israel studying in yeshiva, studying to be a rabbi. And I had found that in the yeshiva, for some reason, there was an old copy of Plato's Apology. <laughs> and I read Plato's Apology and was blown away by Socrates. Yeah. I was like, oh my, like he is speaking to what I had been for some time intuiting as 
a kind of deeper perspective or orientation that I was finding in the Jewish tradition and in the Talmud, but somehow not fully explicated and revealed. And I was like, wow, this is a man who's embodying the spirit of the tradition in a way that I had never seen embodied before. And I was so inspired. I actually went and did my undergraduate degree in ancient Greek philosophy and uh, just to be able to go more deeply into the Socratic teachings. Was your understanding of Socrates supported in the Shiva where you did you go, uh, Rabbi, check this out, <laughs> or they just like, oh gosh. I was in a more open-minded uh, yeshiva, so it wasn't like blasphemy, but you know, it wasn't really engaged, I would say. So uh, I'm not sure how that text got there. I think it was there for me, you know, it was, like, <laughs> it was like waiting for me. So you're describing a, a process, which I think many of us, probably all of us here and a lot of people who are listening have gone through, and that is many of us were reared in the conventional dimensions of our own tradition without the mystical, the contemplative. And somehow we saw something was missing and we went looking in other traditions, found that something, whether it was Buddhist contemplation or yoga or Taoist mysticism or something, found the best in the other traditions, compared the two and thought, oh, my traditions, yeah. But in so many cases, certainly for me, it was only after I took my journey to the East and had done a lot, quite a few years of deep contemplative practice that I looked back at the Christian texts like, oh my, <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? It was there all along. And sounds like you had a somewhat similar experience with reading Socrates. I had, yeah, well, Socrates is interesting. Yeah, it was, Socrates turned me on in a different way than I was in the sort of normative Talmud study, illuminated like a, another perspective that I, I didn't understand it at the time, but you know, was a very formative impression that that made on me because when I look back now and I see kind of the way things have unfolded and how teachings have revealed themselves to me and the way I'm working with people, you know, the methodology is very Socratic. Yes, actually yeah, and yeah. of course it's using what you know it's using a lot more like embodiment principles and, and things that socrates didn't wasn't explicit about the basic orienting principle of seeking truth for its own sake yes yeah. as the guiding light of our practice yes. is i think such a fundamental wisdom you know, and has been at the heart of so many of our Western pursuits, whether it's academia or science, but has been lost to such a great extent yeah. that it's it's rare to find in a university classroom that spirit of open inquiry, love for truth for its own sake. Even, you know, how many people are willing to drink the hemlock these days, right, for... Uh, for, for truth, right? But there's like, it's such a key thing. And, and you know, I read Socrates and studied it and then I sort of forgot about it. But what's interesting is that the most profound experiences on the inner journey that I have had reflected in some sense that principle of being willing to lose everything mm. for truth. Yeah. Like, when we are, or what I've discovered is that when we orient that way in our inner journey, that the the most profound revelations actually, you know, and deaths occur. That's very inspiring to hear. Yeah, I have come to think that the words of Jesus, "The truth will set you free," are some of the most profound that have hit the planet. Yeah, yeah. or giving voice to it in your own experience. I'm assuming we're probably coming towards the end of our. Oh, time. I have another question. All right, we're going to wrap this up at all. I'd like to hear what you teach or your understanding, and I like the way you say currently, but because you're on this journey of contemplative prayer, and I've struggled with that. You know, I have a long, ongoing meditative practice, but I'm also, in my heart of heart, a lover of God with all the baggage that I know. And you can't talk to most people about it. they've been offended by religion or churches, and blah blah blah, but. I found that that meditation is my preparation for prayer. In other words, when I can finally slow it all down and get through the stuff, then I can go to that place where 
Well, then whatever God wants, I can just sit there and you know, feel the presence or sometimes a teaching or an insight or wisdom or you need to do this will come. But, but meditation gets me ready for that, mm-hmm. that practice in the presence, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I brought together you know, my different spiritual yearnings. And, and I've done this mostly on my own with, with influence from uh, men like Roger and Kim Wilbur and the different people. Anyway, I've, I've been haunted by God since I was 11. So yeah, like it, it, how do you teach that or how do you teach prayer and meditation mm-hmm. in your school? Well, we, we, use a, we use a wide range of uh, meditation and you know, I guess what I could put into prayer category techniques. And it really depends on, you know, it's, we have a very progressive kind of process. It's over years where, you know, we really build foundation. It's like building a vessel, you know, building the sanctuary. We build the capacity for integration before we have the need for integration in a way. So that allows for a much more, in my experience, kind of seamless and functional process for people. Because, you know, our approach is very much in the world. It's designed to be lived everyday life in the marketplace, in, in, the, in a life of relationships, of families, of community, of work in the world, of being able to function in the world as is, instead of having to manipulate the world to an extreme degree for us to be able to stay connected. My interest is how can we actually stay fully connected and fully present and engaged in the world at the same time? And that's why we spend a lot of time really building the embodied capacities for integration. And so there are different practices at different stages of the journey, I would say. In a basic way, like prayer has two major forms in the way we, we express it. One is more active prayer or, or more passive prayer, you could say. Those are, not, those are not super precise terms when it gets into a subtle understanding, but it's helpful just, I think, for people to begin to categorize it. Active prayer would be like chanting or reciting formula. Of course, in, in the Jewish tradition, there's many, many Hebrew prayers that are recited on a daily basis by pious Jews and true in other traditions as well. That's one form of prayer, like where we have an active expression of some kind. Passive prayer or a perhaps more contemplative prayer is a uh, kind of more of a process of surrendering to spirit. And that is a more passive posture in the sense that we open to the divine, to spirit, and allow ourselves to become recipients of that grace, of that light, of that blessing from the divine. And so in each of these forms or modes of prayer have many different practices to it. In my own journey, and this is also reflected in our school, what I found is that my active prayers naturally started to become more and more kind of contemplative, yeah, mm. and more and more silent. As it became more and more silent, I, it opened up what I call in the book the journey of, of silence, which opened up for me through prayer which is like a dropping in deeper and deeper into a, a sort of receptive state of silence. And that naturally kind of dropped into more and more depth of silence and more and more sense of spirit actually beginning to... Uh, the experience of the living presence. Living presence. Yeah, the divine presence actually filling, you know, me up. For me, that is true prayer. And then being first two with God. And then the, you know, where I sort of, and God begins the whole thing, like starts to blur. And it's just Godding, Godding me, me and Godding <laughs> happening, you know, and then it's just like, and then for me, the most profound states of love. And a blessing arise from that form of prayer. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unreal. <laughs> what a gift. Guarding. What a, I haven't heard that before. That's great. <laughs> May we all just uh, be guarding. 
Yeah. To me, this has been uh, this has been such a what gift. Joy. What yeah. a joy to explore <laughs> these living streams together, and and it's it feels like <laughs> you you talked about the the possibility of dialogue as a way of reaching deeper understanding. It feels like this is that's what this has been. It's been just a delight. Uh, that, that was our impulse for doing this whole thing. Hopefully, you know, with God's help, we could do something where. Again, conversation it wouldn't be talking heads yelling at each other trying to do the tennis thing, but exploring deep, yeah. more deeply and connecting as a, as another path to God. Yeah, we could do God even just now as we invoke it. I feel like the quality of presence here. You know, this could be a whole inquiry into what happens when we God when we God together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, I know people want to find your writings, your work, your teachings. Can you point us to a website? Yeah, the uh, website is www.kedumah.org. And everything, you know, all of our offerings and programs and books are on there. Uh, wonderful. The Kaduma experience, Kaduma. Kaduma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Rabbi Rebbe Vishlom, <laughs> this has been a priceless gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been incredible joy for me to share. Thank with you. you. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.